Hello and welcome to the Deeper Eye podcast. I am Lara Ferris, your host. For many years, I have been passionate about self-improvement. Through this, I have met the best specialists in their field who have given me tools and the courage to pursue a new path. The purpose of this podcast is to share with you everything I have learned through the conversations I have had with these amazing people. I hope these conversations will impact your life as they did to mine. So many people live their lives feeling very restricted by phobias or very strong fears about either insects, animals, places that they can't go to. I was very interested in knowing the views of Mark and Carrie, Mark Edgar Stevens and Carrie Gonya that we had previously on this podcast. They both work with traumas, with PTSD. They both work with doing work of regression to try and find out what is the ground foundation and the origin of these fears and phobias. So I hope my conversation about the subject will be very useful to some of you that may experience that or know somebody who does experience that. And I honestly, having done it myself, I encourage you to reach out to them if you have this kind of issues because the freedom it gives you to free yourself from these restrictions is honestly priceless. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Carrie Gonya and Mark Edgar Stevens about fears and phobias. So today, the subject I would really love to discuss with you is basically phobias in general, because I've been seeing a friend that has really made me feel so sorry for what she's going through. We were basically going to the theater and some theaters, you know, you don't really know when you book a stall ticket and then you start going down the stairs. Stall doesn't necessarily always mean it's ground floor. Sometime in London, you have to go three floors down to reach the stalls. And I could sense that she was starting to feel really uncomfortable. I could sense it was very cold and she was sweating. And, you know, when we took our seats, she started having very heavy breathing. Then immediately she said, I'm so sorry, Lara, I just can't be sitting here. And to make a very long story short, we had to leave our seats and try to have seats above in the upper circle. And she explained to me that several years ago, she got stuck in an elevator that dropped a bit, and people in the elevator thought they were dying. So they were screaming with a lot of fear and and anxiety. And since that day, and she was an adult already when she had that, she wasn't a child at all. She can't be in a very enclosed place and she can't be in a tunnel, which is very... I didn't understand the connection with the tunnel, but that's what it is. 
And it just, I cannot stop thinking about this. I've seen people have phobias, you know, of spiders or snakes very often. But to have this restriction on the lifestyle and, you know, not being able, you can't go around any city without having to go through a tunnel. It's, it's really difficult. And I was wondering if, first of all, you could explain to me the difference between a fear and a phobia. Are they the same? Are they both irrational? Are they both real? They're probably real for the person anyway. So just your view. You, you hit something key there. They are real for the person, but fears and phobias are separated. The difference between them is that a phobia is excessive. It's persistent. It's always there, whether the stimuli or stimulus is there or not. Usually phobias don't have any moment of, of conscious origin, meaning there wasn't an experience that happened that created the phobia. The phobia is considered to be not a normal response. This person's having an immediate physical, mental, emotional response, but it's not normal. It's outsized from the actual stimuli or stimulus that's happening. That's different from a fear. A fear is based on something that's happening in the moment or something that is definable that has happened from the past, which gets into PTSD, it gets into conditioning, all of that. A fear, though, will not be outsized. It will be considered normal. Uh, for instance, if a, a rattlesnake all of a sudden start, mm. appears and starts rattling, fear happens. That is a very natural thing that should happen. The fear response leads us either to fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And in that fight flight response, we're protecting ourselves. Animals within this human, you know, within this, this earthly realm, we all have that, that fight flight response, that fear response. And it's what keeps us safe. Whereas a phobia doesn't necessarily keep you safe. A phobia is being triggered all of the time, but it's not definable. What your friend is expressing though, is a fear that sounds like a PTSD moment. Mm -hmm. There's a traumatic moment that happened. And there are things that she could do to be working through the fear. Whereas a phobia, it's very hard to work through a phobia because you can't find the defining reason for why the person is experiencing that now. And I think this is a, we have a good place where we can lean over to Carrie as well. I do find in my work, that sometimes people can find that reason when they do some of the past life work. Yeah. When they do some of the regression work, they will find something there and they go, oh, there's the reason because it's not explainable in this lifetime. It's not explainable in this normal mind. Yeah. But they can find things in other places or perhaps through epigenetics, through, you know, through, through things being passed down, the ancestors, perhaps they're carrying the memory there. So, I, so that's my little clinical, you know, <laughs> response to the difference between fears and phobias. But Carrie, it'd be great to hear from you about how fear or phobias get passed down through generations. Before you start, Carrie, I want to add a question to you. For example, I've been stuck in lifts before. So the reason why it didn't do this effect on me is it maybe because it was less traumatic, the moment in the lift, or maybe because my friend had something in a different life that could have led for her to be much more re responsive to that shock. Yeah, she absolutely could have had past life trauma or intergenerational trauma. I have a client who I sent to Mark, actually, who had a fear and a phobia of driving on the freeway, but she couldn't trace it to anything. 
And then when uh-huh. we did a constellation, we found her uncle and the generation before on her dad's side was on the freeway and got in a horrific car accident and everyone died, like five people oh, died. Gosh. And so once we cleared that and she did some hypnotherapy with Mark, that girl's been driving on the freeway. I mean, she was so restricted for 20 plus years, she could not drive more than a five mile radius around her house. So there's absolutely things within the family system that Mm -hmm. I think are connected to those phobias. And oftentimes when people can't be in tunnels, can't be in elevators, closed spaces, that claustrophobia, in my work, it's tied to, you know, was a grandparent a prisoner of war? Was somebody in jail? Was somebody in a mental mental institution? Was somebody trapped in any way? So in my work, Oftentimes when people come, I will ask what their biggest fear is and if they have any phobias because I can very easily trace it to old generational trauma. So so basically this trapping in the lift could also be just a trigger to something much deeper for her. Yeah, they call it a felt sense. So her body, her cells, as we know, we're all carrying memories, wisdom, traumas, in ourselves from the ancestors. So her body might have a felt sense when she's in those locations. Oh my gosh, I'm not safe. I'm going to die. I'm in war. Whether it's it's 99% of the time, it's not conscious, but her body is remembering something that happened however many mm-hmm. generations ago. And it's really common. I actually see it a lot. I see the claustrophobia one a lot. There's a lot of trapped energy mm-hmm. within family systems. Mm. And the work, can we talk a little bit about the work that you both offer to help with this? Is there a way to, you start with this, then you continue with Mark's hypnotherapy? Do you have to clear before or can one or the other work or they have to work together? I think they're highly compatible. I think they're highly compatible modalities. I think you can, I think it's preference if the person wants to do a constellation or if they want to, if they feel comfortable enough to do hypnotherapy or regression. I just clocked it when I was doing her constellation of like how, like the physical response in her body. So I sent her over to Mark and I think she only had one constellation with me, one, two hypnotherapy sessions with Mark. And she was like off to the races. I actually saw her recently and she's doing so well. It's, it's amazing. That's quite incredible. There's something Carrie said there that to me is key. It's up to the person, yeah. the entry point. And Carrie and I, we've we've talked about this a lot. We talked about this with some of the projects, even like what's the entry point? Like at what point does the person enter for the 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 optimal healing for them? And I think a lot of it has to do with one, the modality, two, the the facilitator or the practitioner. Like, is this someone that I feel comfortable? They might need to go to someone like Carrie first to feel safe enough to open up to that heart or maybe maybe it's someone that feels good with you know some an older guy do you know what i mean like okay well and we you never know what it is but like different entry points i think can make a big difference in the healing so complementary yes i think it does work together but also like really being able to ask the person who's affected by it which you know how are you comfortable getting in there so someone might just want to talk about it and or they might say, you know, what? I don't want to talk about it a lot. But for in my work, if it's something that is fear based, we talk about the actual thing that happened. And then we talk about what the opposite response to that would be. And then what we do is we do a little bit of what would be called exposure therapy. So 
I might, I actually did this. I actually did this on the 11th floor of a building in Los Angeles. Once there was a woman that I noticed we were standing there waiting for the elevator and she was in fear and she was standing, she kept looking over at the window, but she couldn't fully look at the window. And I said, you know, I asked her, I said, are you okay? And she said, I just, I have this real fear of heights and this window is, and I walked her through in five minutes. We did some exposure therapy there in the hallway. And she goes, oh my God, this is amazing. She was standing by, right by the window and looking out. She goes, who are you and what do you do? I just saw an opportunity and did it because we exposed through the moment, the step-by-step and her having a different feeling to getting closer to the window. A phobia, there was someone I worked with years ago, spiders, had an unrealistic fear of spiders. I said, have you ever been bitten? Have you ever been, you know, a spider ever woke, you know, woken up and you had a spider on your face? No, 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 no. But I live in an old apartment. There's lots of spiders. And I would like to make friends with the spiders rather than see them as these threats. So his was a phobia. He couldn't explain it. So we approached his in a slightly different way. He was a, a, a storyteller. So he was a writer and a storyteller. And I said, okay, let's write and tell a story about a spider that becomes your friend. And so like we did that whole process. And in doing that process, he started getting closer and closer to the spiders to the point that he reached out to me and said, Mark, I'm now seeing spiders and like actively looking for them and looking for all of my new friends, like in the apartment, you know, and like outside. And he started looking for spiders in that way. So it's, it's all about having a different approach to whatever the stimuli or stimulus is, to whatever the phobia or the fear is. Can you have a different response to it? If you don't have this fear or this phobia yourself, you tend to observe this person having it and like wondering how can they not see that there is no danger. And yet you look at yourself after. So as for example, in my case, if I receive a call in the middle of the night, it can be a mis- It can be many things. I mean, not really a middle, but if it's late, if I'm sleeping and the phone call wakes me up, I open my eyes expecting a very bad news because I've been woken previously, you know, by phone calls like that. So you just realize that it's actually, there is nothing rational in either. You know, it's just something that you lived and it registered in your mind as danger. And it's going to be a danger until, like you're you're explaining, you try to relive it as something different, right? You said for this person, for example, it took you two sessions, two hypnotherapy to do it. And is it all depending on how resistant the person is? Is it all depending on how much awareness you can have about your fear or? It's all of these things, Lara. So there are a few things that would be key in this. One, what is the person's level of awareness for why they have this fear or this, this resistance that comes up, you know, how aware are they? Can they break it down? Can they identify a point? How much can they make it truly in their feeling, in their feeling body? Like how much can you feel the fear or the, the phobia when you're, you know, when, when you're imagining it and how real can you make the opposite of that? And can you make that story then? So that basically what you're doing is you're conditioning a person to have a different response, just like Pavlov's dog, you know, the, the, the bell rings, the dog gets food and the dog. And so soon the dog learns, oh, every time the bell rings, they start to salivate whether the food is present or not. It's the same sort of thing. Like with hypnotherapy is you're conditioning a person to have a different response to a stimuli or stimulus. 
So like, for instance, in this particular case where it was like the fear of getting on the highway, the fear of driving, we were able to go into a very real experience of what that felt like and a very real experience of what it feels like. For instance, while you're driving along the road, is there a song you love listening to? Great. So the next time you go on, you put that song on and you're listening to that song. Now imagine that song right now. Now imagine you're getting onto the freeway and the person's imagining it so much. It's like practicing it over and over again so that when it actually happens, they have that response. I had a client reach out to me yesterday, came to me for fear of flying. One session, she was flying all the time. One session, fear of flying, the fear was gone. It's now four years later and she sent me a text out of the blue. She's like, hey, I had one of the bumpiest flights I've ever had. Saw everyone getting scared on the plane. She goes, I put in the, the song. There was a song and there was also a touchstone that had to do with like an object she had. And she goes, and my fear was gone. And she's like, wow. I still can't believe that all these years later it's gone because we did a new conditioning to the old stimuli or old stimulus. Like what is the thing that's causing it? Can you have a different reaction to it? In your case, when the phone call came, it was always bad news. With you, we would say, okay, when the phone rings and I would ask you to imagine the most pleasant thing you could, what, what could it be? What kind of good news would you get? What kind of things, what would that feel like? Describe that feeling to me. What are other times that you've had that feeling? And we tie all of that into the sound of the phone ringing. And soon when that phone rings, you go, oh, it's good news. Something good Mm -hmm. is coming through. If we don't know what the news actually is, but your response to it is what's changed. Your response is what's different. And it takes practice. It's not just that. I mean, it must have something related to it. So one in four people that's theorized that one in four people, 25% of the human population is what is called hyper-suggestible. Hyper-suggestible meaning it's one of the reasons why advertisement works. If you, if you hear something a few times, you go, oh, you know, I need that thing. Oh, right. I want to feel that way. It's why advertising works. 25% of us, we hear something, we see something and we believe it to be true. And so that becomes our, our conditioning. Depending upon your level of suggestibility, hypnosis is very good for those who are not resistant. to. If, if a skeptic comes to me or someone says, I don't believe in hypnosis and I don't believe it's going to work and I'm here because my boyfriend told me to come. My chances of getting through to that person and being really successful have really decreased a great deal yeah. because there's everything against it working. Yeah. But someone else that comes and says, oh, I did hypnotherapy for years. It was really, really amazing. I go under, I go really, really deep. And I'm so excited about this because I believe it will work. Their level of suggestibility is already high. So it makes my work easier because yeah. my work is not convincing them not to be afraid. My work is to go into the subconscious mind and help create a new response to an old situation or help to reveal other things that could be possible within that situation. Resistance, the longer it's going to take. The less resistance, the easier it is to do. Some people, one session is all they need. Some people, three to five sessions. And some people will give up after a first session and go, see, I knew it wasn't going to work. This is a very, very important part of the conversation I want to have because obviously, I am more interested personally in touching those people who would come to you and say, look, I'm here because I'm forced to, but I don't believe in it. Because these are the the people that really need help. And maybe because I was there once, maybe because I don't know the real reason, but that's what I'm interested in. And I'd like to go a bit deeper in that. Is it the density of what they're living in, this 
disconnection completely because the more disconnected you are with this part of yourself that is, I don't know how to call it, maybe divine or, uh, yeah, divine I think is the word that that comes to mind straight away. Uh, the further away you are from that place, the harder it is for you to believe that you can reach any place of peace or even inner happiness or, you know, all of that. So to those people, you're saying it's harder, but you would still do the work. So can you talk a little bit about how would you approach them? So Lara, what the, the point that you're hitting on here is belief systems mm -hmm. and belief systems are key to this work. So let me use this example. Someone who believes that there's something greater than themselves, yeah. that there are, that they believe that things are working in their favor. Someone who believes that anything is possible. Those are the people who work to put a human on the moon. Those are the people who look for cures for cancers and things that are supposed mm -hmm. to be uncurable. Those are the people who learn how to make humans fly through the air. Those are the people who look for what those deepest spiritual connections are because they believe, they already believe that it's possible. And what we look for and what we believe is what shows up for us. So that level of belief or that level of connection yes. to something greater or something divine, it is key in being able to make those, those discoveries. If divine is what we're talking about or energy is what we're talking about. For some people, it's the belief that the mathematics show us the truth of this. Therefore, I believe I can fly or I believe yeah. that we can send someone to the moon. So the belief system is everything. And when the belief system is not there, we make our world smaller. Then we only go into what can I taste, touch, see, yes. smell, feel. Because that I can prove. That's verifiable. I can't prove this big, maybe, you know, divine thing that's working in my favor. I can't believe that there's energy that's giving me this fear because I picked it up from my grandfather or my great-grandfather or some ancestor that passed away long before that because I can't taste, touch, see, smell, hear, feel that thing. So belief system is everything. But when we don't have a belief system and something that's bigger or more possible, we make our worlds much more smaller. And as you would say, we get somewhat disconnected then from what else is possible and our world becomes much smaller. Nope, don't want to hear about this thing. Don't want to hear about that thing. Just want to look at like what I can control within my space because it's very scary to think that there might be all this other stuff in the world that you don't have any control over. It's scary and yet so comforting, isn't it, Carrie, that you you have some someone, I don't know, something, someone just much more powerful than all this, all these fears, all these, I mean... I, I guess it's a conversation that's very difficult to reach, you know, a sense of right or wrong. Like every podcast that I'm on, I get asked, what would you tell the skeptics? And my answer is always the same. I would tell them, like, I hope they know spirit. I hope they know something bigger than themselves. Like, I, I don't know anything outside of this. So I feel like I'm kind of on the other end of the spectrum. And I cannot imagine not being connected. Yeah. I have a lot of compassion for the people that don't know that there is something much greater outside of them, even if that's just yeah. love. Because we have a lot of people who clearly believe that there's, let's say, God for other people would be some something else, right? But because they 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 show this by going to whatever religion they're 
They, so they go to church or to a synagogue or to a mud. They pray five times a day or not. Or, you know, they show all of this. And yet, this is the, the most intriguing thing for me. They go back into the world when they're outside these sacred places and they act as if there isn't something much bigger. And I've seen so many examples like that, you know, like going to, for example, you know, in my surrounding, going to church every single Sunday or every single week and then going outside the church and acting in a very specific way that was very often giving me this idea that really, would you think that that divinity you're praying for would actually do that? So that's how I could see the disconnection still there. So I don't know how we got here, but it was important for me to just, you know, talk about this because maybe somebody will hear that and realize that actually it's it takes a bit more than just going and showing up at a place where divinity is. It's your action. It's how how connected you are to that divinity that will help you a lot. And maybe that's bringing us back to our phobias and fears because automatically this will dissipate a bit and gets better. Lara, there's something, and I don't know if this has been, I don't know if I'm coining the phrase right now. So everyone listen up to this wonderful phrase. It may already be out there, but what came into my head was a divinity dichotomy. Mm -hmm. So like there's a split in the divinity that someone believes in the divine, they get a great sense of comfort from the divine, but it only exists in these spaces or at these times. And the rest of the time we're out on our own and the divine is not there. And so part of what you're describing that would lead to a sense of fear is in this space or with these people or in this presence, I have a sense of protection or a sense of connection to the divine. But outside of this, I have forgotten this connection or I don't feel this sort of thing. So imagine how much fear would build up there, which is when I'm here or when I do this movement or when I do this ritual, I am protected by the divine. But outside of this, it doesn't exist. And I do think that a big part of the challenge is to be able to take the divine, which is inside of us, into everything that we yeah, do yeah. and realizing that all of those fears even that have come up, the divine is there in each one of those fears, mm -hmm. just as much as the divine is in all of these other things. And if you can find the divine or find that connection in all of those things, you become a much more empowered individual because you're not separating and going, oh, the divine is over there. The divine yeah. exists in that. The divine is in the ritual. The divine is in everything. It's in every moment, every breath, every everything. And then there is a sense of like connection and protection and a lessening of the fear. Yeah. And it's a little like when we talk about happiness and we realize that a lot of people seek happiness from the outside in rather than, you know, just practicing to realizing that it's the other way around. And it comes to exactly what you were saying, that you attract more of what you feel and what you, you, you live every day and believe every day. And to, to basically come back to that person, 
who has this very dehabilitating, like, you know, it's, it's really, I could sense how disturbing this is in her everyday life because she was also explaining to me that there are some areas in London and in New York where she also lives where she has to leave the car and wow. hop in a different car so that she doesn't go in a tunnel. Some other days she feels a bit more courageous and she closes her eyes. But if there is traffic in the tunnel, that's it. It's like panic. I certainly will forward your details to that person because I did promise her I will do so. And I really can't wait for her to live without it because, you know, I, I just feel the freedom she would be in would be amazing. And... Yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about this and just ask if there is anything you can suggest now, you know, in this conversation to her to do in the meantime until she speaks with you. Well, so I'm going to be very proactive and forward here. I will get to that, but yeah. I want to bring up an interesting concept that you brought up. Imagine that your life is about being focused on that divine connection, being focused on joy, being focused on a sense of relief, being focused on a sense of appreciation, a sense of love, all of those things. If your life is focused on all that, that is the release then from the fear, the anxiety, the pressure. It doesn't mean that life is perfect. It doesn't mean that every moment in life is, you know, so, you know, Pollyanna mm -hmm. joyous, yeah. you know, but we're living in a different experience with a different expectation. And I do see this, especially in people who've reached like their 40s and their 50s. We've either conditioned ourselves to be in a place of expecting that life is really going to go wrong and it's going to do us wrong, or being in a place where we experience that life is a really beautiful thing mm -hmm. and brings us really beautiful things. And then it's very interesting because we tend, no matter what's happening, we tend to experience life in one way or another based on whatever our conditioning is. If she, if this friend of yours has a conditioning based on that traumatic experience that happened and that fear that happened, one of the things that she could start to do between now, if she sees mm -hmm. Terry or mm -hmm. sees me or sees someone else, yeah. what she could start to do is she could start to imagine herself in these spaces that are smaller spaces. She can start with it being big and imagine that in that space, she feels a sense of joy. So how, did, how does she do that? She has to attach already to an experience that is joyous, attach already to a, a conditioning and experience she already has, a child that she knew, a puppy, yeah. a walk on the beach, and that she's in this space and she's experiencing it and then letting it get smaller and she's still experiencing it, smaller and she's still experiencing it. At any point that it gets to be too much, she can stop with the space being that big and then come back to it tomorrow. And start again and see if you can keep imagining yourself in the space and in the space and having that joyous experience all the way to the point that she finally says, you know what, let me go into this large room, turn off the lights, and I'm going to do the same thing. Okay, I'm all right with that. Let me go to a smaller mm -hmm. room and a smaller room and a smaller room till finally you find yourself in a closet and you're sitting there thinking about the most beautiful sunny day and eating ice cream and enjoying being in that closet. And they, the image of that may sound so absolutely ridiculous, yeah. and yet that's the whole point. Fear is based on these things that have happened, but we can change our response. But the way to do that is step-by-step step, taking yourself into the experience of it with a different response, a different response. That's what she could do to begin changing her experience of it. And as long as I'm on my soapbox, let me just go ahead and go a step farther and say, yeah. we can do that with our lives. 
if we are experiencing that there's something in our lives that's causing us this debilitating fear or resistance, uh, anxiety, fear, whatever it may be, we can start to see it differently. We can start to find the opportunity. We can start to find the blessing. We can start to find the something in it that is making our lives better rather than making our lives worse. And all of that is happening right up here inside of the head. Yeah. So I'm off my, soap, off my soapbox now. So every time we discuss either you and I or Carrie and I, I, I realize it always goes this way. You have the awareness of something. This is how it starts. Otherwise, nothing happens. You either have the awareness of it, then it's your decision to take action for it. There is something you have to do because you can't change a result by continuing to do the same thing. That's what I think we call uh, insanity, right? Like <laughs> you just have to change something for to have a different result. And the third part, this is where I feel most of people abandon ship, is the persistence and consistence and practice, where they abandon and they say, oh, that, sh sorry, excuse my language, but that whatever word doesn't work. Yes, it works, but you didn't give it a chance because you did not do it again. Like even today, I was doing a constellation with, with Carrie and I was like, oh, I'm so fed up of this. I'm just tired. I'm tired. And if I wasn't with Carrie, who, who is a friend now, I probably would have said, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm done. And it, you stop. But this is where it is the magic that happens, is persisting in that pain and going further. And after, I found myself with Carrie just talking about things that for all these previous years, I needed Carrie to talk for me. Mm -hmm. But that's where the magic happened when I was like, okay, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm done with this. I'm exhausted now because I've been doing so much work on me. And sometimes I just want to say that because it's very important to consistently do it and do it and do it because it's so worth it, even if we don't feel it at the moment that we are exhausted and I don't know the word I was in. I was like, like annoyed, you know, like this frame of mind. And I think it's, a, it's beautiful. And I, I guess with your hypnosis, Mark, that you give, because I've had some myself, also, if you just listen to them once and leave them, it's not going to really help you. You have to keep over and over listening to them and, it's tough work. We're not saying the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. So many. And I think there's gifts in the resistance too, right? Like the resistance showed us, okay, this is a pattern. I've been here before. I'm sick of it. I want out of it. You know, and so much in Mark's work and my work is, yeah, the repetition of wanting to feel better. And tied to your friend with the, re the restriction of freedom, the fact that that felt sense in her body is so powerful. I would ask her, who was restricted in your family? Mm. Where were where was freedom restricted? You know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Mark, Mark, do you, I, I have a question about kind of soul contracts? I feel like I've been thinking about this the last couple of days with those clients that come that have deep resistance. I have a client right now that's like nothing works. I go to you, I go to Mark, I go to this person, I go to that person, nothing works, which we know is not true. Do you think? There's a soul contract that maybe they are supposed to learn through 
you know, X, Y, Z? Like, why do you think that happens? Because I don't see it that often. Carrie, I, I really invite differing points of view on this. So I'm going to give what my point of view is on this. I'm not going to say it's absolute fact, but this is what my belief, current belief system is on this. Staying up with the idea that current the belief systems can change. But for me, when someone says they've tried everything, and by the way, I kind of like it when someone says, yeah. I've tried everything. You are my last ditch effort. I'm like, okay, good. Because if you've tried everything, that means you are so willing to yeah. do whatever it takes to get to a better place. But that's the key right there. Are you really willing yeah. Yeah. to do whatever it takes to get to that place? Because sometimes the final piece of it is the full acceptance that this is the way that it is. Yeah. Like sometimes yeah. like really the full acceptance of if you have lost your leg in a car accident and you used to be a dancer and you've lost your leg, does it mean you're not going to dance again? No, it doesn't. You can dance, but you're certainly going to have to do it very differently than you did when you had two full human legs because now you're going to have a prosthetic leg mm -hmm. or now you're going to have something else in place of that or now you're not going to have a leg at all, but you might find a new way to do it, but you must accept you've lost the leg. Like you can't just, you know, I'm going to now imagine yeah. what it was like when I had my leg. So sometimes it is the full acceptance. So for instance, I find this quite often, someone who's got great relationships, maybe they were not doing so great with money, or maybe they were great with money, but they were not so great with their career choices. Maybe they were great with their career choices, but they were not so great at taking care of themselves. Like everybody's got something that they carry around, strong points and the not so strong points. And if it's something that you really, truly really, truly have tried everything and you've given into the process and you've worked through the process, sometimes the last piece of the puzzle to me is the full acceptance of mm -hmm. this is how it is. And in that acceptance, then there is a release from it mm -hmm. because the release is not that you're changing the external reality. The release is that you're changing, you're changing your internal perspective about external reality. Because to me, that's the last key part of it. When someone's holding on to something and nothing seems to be working, it's because you've not yet changed your perspective on the very thing itself that you're trying to work through. That's my belief system on it. And also in, in the few years I've been, you know, trying to make sense of this all, it's the fact that by accepting these moments of pain, you realize more clearly that they don't last forever yeah. anyway. It's a movement. It's like, it's de-associating de yourself with, with the pain. That's a pain I'm experiencing, but I am not that pain. So I'm going to go in and out of it. And the fact that I kind of accept that, like joy, it's gone and it's going to come back. Pain has come and it's going to go. And I think this is, this is the freedom for me. This is, this is the start of the real sense of freedom. And I was going to say when Carrie said, you know, that these people that come and believe that nothing's going to work, I think it's a great thing that they do come mm -hmm. to these people to mm -hmm. seek for help. I think it's a step it's a very great step forward because, you know, we, we, we all three, I'm sure, and many people know people who just doesn't, don't even acknowledge that they are in a loop of suffering. 
So they stay in it, not even considering going to someone to do something that's not going to work, you know, because eventually it will work if you continue. That's the thing is eventually something does change. And it's what Carrie was saying when she said, you know, we know that not to be true, because if you do things, truly do things differently, something does change, like something does change. But sometimes that thing that starts to change is the perspective around the thing for you to see it. Like some, like sometimes I point out the clients and I'll say, take back a look, a look at a year ago and let's go through like what happened in the past year when they go, gosh, nothing's changed. I'm in the same position. And I go, take a look at where you've gone in this past. You're still dealing with some other things that are coming up, but look at what you did do. Like, don't discount any of that. You came a long way in a year. Don't discount that. So I was about to tell my friend at some point, and then, of course, I stopped myself because I I got so worried to make it much worse for her. And I hope she won't listen to this conversation until after she's done the work with you. But I was going to say to her, how do you do on an airplane? Because for me, if you think of it this way, it's much worse than a tunnel. Like you have nowhere to go for hours and hours. (laughs) At least the tunnel lasts for just a few minutes, you know. So, of course, she does travel a lot. So I just think that the reason why I'm saying that is because you, you made me think, Mark, when you said you have to put yourself into imagining a beautiful situation. I'm sure it counts that the incentive of what you're doing is greater than your fear. For example, for her to go on a plane and the, the absolute uh, joy and willingness to reach the destination is much greater than her fear. And maybe that's alone would be something to, to help her, you know. You're talking about a motivating factor. And it's something I always ask people when someone says, I want to quit smoking. I go, why do you want to quit smoking? Mm. I want to live long so that I can watch my kids grow up. That's a strong motivating factor. So when someone says, ah, you know, my girlfriend or my boyfriend wants me to quit smoking, oh, that's not really a strong enough motivating factor. So sometimes the motivating factor alone is enough to be able to make a change. So it's a great call out. Yeah. And also the other thing I learned with my sessions to get rid of whatever I came to you to get rid of (laughs) was that you said you have to replace your habit by something else that's healthy. So I think that's something that was very useful for me that I'd like to remind people of. So, for example, I don't know if you you want to quit smoking. I remember you saying it would be useful to replace each time you want to take a cigarette by something else that's not going to make you fall into another addiction. Like that's like drinking water or squeezing a bowl or whatever. And uh, yeah, anything else, Carrie, that you can think of to add? Or I think we've covered pretty much the difference between fear and phobia. Very interesting to see, you know, the difference. (laughs) And uh, it's really great to know that there is something to do about it. Don't have to live with it. Lara, there's always something that can be done. And sometimes that something is sitting with it. But there's always something that can be done. I think when, again, I'm just going to make that point. And sometimes that something is acceptance because in the acceptance, there's a change. So, you know, anyway, 
Yeah. I'm back on the soapbox again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy about your woman that flies. I remember when you first started working with her all those years ago and she had to call you on the airplane. So that's exciting. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have these issues. I was like terrified on airplanes. My goodness. If you go back, you know, a few years, you see all these things. My sister left me at the airport once. Like... (laughs) My sister is afraid of flying, and she literally left me at the airport once. And my dad was like, "Did you think the plane was going to go down?" And you put your baby sister on the plane? Like she had, she had to she had to leave the airport. So yeah, the thing is, oh I, I feel yeah. they know it's not nothing's going to happen. Like when I used to yeah. have my fear, this is the worst part yeah. of it. It's yeah. like no, 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 they're fine, they're going to be fine. But I yeah. can't live yeah. this fear on it. So funny. Oh, man. Anyway, thank you both so much. Love thank you, you very much. Love you. And look forward to the next time. Bye. Thank you very much, Mark and Carrie, for being with us today. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the Deeper Eye podcast and share this conversation with people that you know will find it very useful and will benefit from it. And do feel free to reach out to Carrie and Mark. Their website will be in the description. And they really, really can help you. They did it for me. They did it for so many people. And freeing yourself from so many restrictions is honestly the best thing you would do for yourselves. Looking forward to the next conversation. And very, very good day to you all.